Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Galloway and Isabel podcast. My name is Thomas Galloway. So today I'm back once again doing a solo podcast, this time talking about the best books that I read in June. And naturally, I should probably go without saying, but these are not books that came out in June. These are just books that I happen to read in June. It could come out at any time. Most of them are pretty recent. A novel from a couple years ago, a couple books that have come out in the last 10 years or so about business and about running, which were mostly what I covered throughout this. I have also The Prince on here by Machiavelli, which came out in 1513. So quite a bit of variety. And I will be going through these books, talking a little bit about each of them. I'll be doing them in order from first place, the best book that I read this month. And I'll have all these books listed in the description below as well. So if you are watching on YouTube, that's awesome. But also if you want to take this podcast on the go and any of our other podcasts, you can listen to it on the podcast app that comes with your iPhone or SoundCloud. On SoundCloud, we haven't done a great job of keeping the most recent episodes up there, but we will have in the future every... The latest episode will be on there at all times. There's a space issue with SoundCloud, so you won't necessarily get uh, the whole library, but you can go to YouTube for that or buy an iPhone. Okay, so let's get started. In first place, Cherry by Nico Walker. And this is the only novel on the list. Uh, the author insists that it's a work of fiction, but it seems like it's very closely based on his life. Uh, he, the book is about a man who enlists in the army, fights overseas in Iraq. When he comes back, he becomes addicted to a bunch of different drugs and begins robbing banks. Uh, the author, Nico Walker, is in jail for robbing, I believe, 11 banks. Uh, he's been in jail since 2013 and will be getting out in 2020. He wrote this novel on a typewriter in prison. So it does seem like it's closely based on his life, um, but there's, it's possible he either put in things a little, a little extra that he feels like he needs to call it work of fiction. Um, so either way, it was really interesting. Uh, this novel is also being turned into a movie uh, starring Tom Holland from Spider-Man. And it's a very interesting book. Uh, it's, it's funny in a sad sort of way. He very matter-of-factly uh, makes fun of how terrible his situation is from when he's fighting overseas, to when he comes back and gets addicted to drugs, and most notably heroin. And he just lays out all his insecurities in a very nonchalant way, as well as the insecurities of other people, just very plainly. And I think that's the best way to do it. He's not um, making it super, he's not being super dramatic about it. He's just saying, like, this is the way it is, and in a humorous way. And I'm not sure everybody will find it funny. And it's definitely not like laugh out loud funny, but it is, it's the way he goes about it is not, it's not that serious. It's serious topics, but in a, just a very like, this is just the way things are. And I always approach it. I always appreciate that approach. I think it's the best way to do it. And it's one of the best books I've read this year. Uh, if not number one, at the end of the year, at the end of the year, I'll probably do a list or a podcast about the top 10 books I've read throughout the year, and this is definitely going to be on it. I don't see any way I could possibly push it off the list of the top 10 books I've read in 2019. It also has a great cover. 
which is always a bonus. Uh, it looks cool, and it'd be a great one uh, for a library someday. Okay, let's move on to number two. Uh, the, the one problem with novels is I feel like I need if I'm going to really talk about them a lot, I need to do more preparation and really take it seriously and dissect it as if I'm doing a book report. Whereas nonfiction, you can just sort of go through some of the fat main interesting facts about a story, and it's easier to do a podcast about that. So I think the more I read novels and other works of fiction, I'll take them more seriously when I uh, do it in a podcast. Number two, Can't Hurt Me, Master Your Mind and Defy the Odds by David Goggins. I'm not really sure how well-known Goggins is. Uh, in the circles that my friends, he's really well-known. He's a very motivational guy. Uh, he was a Navy SEAL. He has come on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of different times and is extremely motivational. I'd imagine he's probably one of uh, Rogan's most popular guests. And he, uh, he was the 36th African-American Navy SEAL had a really rough childhood, abusive father who worked his kids to death, basically. Uh, he, just a few highlights, he went from 297 pounds to less than 200. I don't know the exact number, but he lost over 100 pounds in three months. So he could be, I believe it was for the Army. It, no, not, it was the Navy or the Navy. Some part of the military, he had to get down. He had to lose over 100 pounds in three months. And he did that. Uh, he has competed in the Badwater 135 and other ultramarathons. The Badwater 135 is a 135 mile run through Death Valley. It is, they call it the toughest foot race uh, in the world. And it starts at the lowest point in Death Valley, I believe, and then ends at a very high point. It's obviously extremely hot. It's typically in the 130 degrees. I think it said it rarely gets below one. 115, uh, and he ran in 06, 07, and he got like third, fifth place and third place, respectively. And then I believe he ran again in 2013 after a hiatus from ultra marathons and finished uh, still in the top 20. And uh, the bad bad water is a really interesting race. Um, actually, the guy who has the course record currently graduated from the Ivy College of Business at Iowa State. So that's pretty cool. He, this guy, uh, Pete Kostelnik, also ran across the U.S. in 42 days, which I believe is still the fastest time. He averaged about 78 miles per day to do that, which is pretty incredible. And uh, Goggins also uh, has the record, had the record for the most pull-ups in 24 hours with 4,030. Uh, he said that in 2013. And I mean, aside from all his incredible accomplishments, his his way of going about his message is really good. It feels really authentic. Uh, it does not feel like a salesperson turned motivational speaker who hasn't really done anything but knows the right things to say. And those people are always very annoying. Uh, we have a lot of them come to classes in our, they come to speak to our business classes from time to time. And they do have good messages, but it has it doesn't really have any gravitas, any authentic, authenticity to it that uh, makes you really take them seriously. And like you can apply the messages they give you, but it, but uh, I don't know. It's it's not it's not quite like this. Uh, Goggins describes his childhood, his upbringing, and it is 
extremely impactful. And he has, this is stuff he may have mentioned in the book, but he definitely mentioned on Rogan's podcast. And I would recommend checking out both those episodes as well. Uh, I don't have, I believe one of them is episode 1080. And the other one was more recently, like 1200 something. You can check both those out. They're extremely good. In fact, if you don't want to read the book, he, he covers basically everything in the book between those two podcasts. So definitely check those out. And he's on YouTube all over the place. He's a very common podcast guest and a motivational speaker uh, for other groups of people. But one thing that one of the main things that stuck out stood out to me in his podcast with Rogan was he talked about he's like I don't really care if you're religious or not, but just imagine that if at the end of your life there's some sort of judge who basically has a board and it has your picture and it has a description of you and tells everything that you should have done if you had reached your maximum potential. So I picture it something like in like Madden or 2K where it has a player and has a description about that player. And like I just picture that like reaching the end of your life and having someone present this board to you of what you should have been. And then looking at yourself and being like, how close am I to that person? And that is a really sobering thought. And that is something I think about a lot. It, it, I think, I think I was, I have potential to do a lot of things. And sometimes it feels a little bit like a curse because you feel as if you are, as if you are not, uh, if as if you are like um, wasting a lot if you don't reach your full potential, and that can be kind of exhausting. But I also think like you might as well just shoot for it. And for me, that illustration, that visualization was a great way and still is a great way to, uh, to really like think about matching yourself up with another version of yourself, the best version of yourself. And I, one, thing, one thing I did after that was to write down, and this is what Goggins recommended, was write down what you think that board would look like, that board that had you on it, at your full potential, what those things would have been, and then just try to achieve those. And so I think that's a really useful strategy. He also, the phrase he uses, maybe to uh, annoying extent, is callousing your mind. And basically just go through difficult things over and over again, and you get to the point where nothing bothers you. And nothing will, uh, will um, discourage you. And that is, uh, that's obviously a really powerful place to be. And I think there's a lot of things, I mean, running for me has been really, and I imagine for him too, has been a really simple, easy way to do that. Uh, it's, it's obviously very difficult and requires essentially no uh, investment other than time and energy. It's something everybody can do. And I've even noticed on a smaller scale, just running for long amounts of time is you just less things bother you. Your mind and your body do not have the energy to be anxious about stupid things. And that is obviously a place we all want to achieve. And uh, that's one good way to do it. So I don't really know overall what my main main, uh, point here is, but check out Can't Hurt Me by David Goggins. Uh, he, He talks a lot about the military. He was friends with the guy who 
uh, Marcus Luttrell, who survived the Lone Survivor, the movie with Mark Wahlberg, and he knew him fairly well, it seems. And so he talks about that a bit. He talks about his uh, a bunch of different parts about the military and the training there and how difficult it was. That was fascinating stuff. Uh, so I would definitely recommend checking out uh, that book. On to number three, a similar topic, uh, Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. And this is a pretty popular book. This guy has a TED Talk as well that I assume, I haven't actually watched it, but it looks like it covers basically the same stuff that's in the book, just in less detail. And it, this book is focused a lot around the, and I do not know how to pronounce this, uh, Tarahumara tribe that lives in the Copper Canyons in Northwest Mexico. This tribe runs a lot, and it's basically what their culture is built around. They, they, uh, everybody in the tribe just runs all the time, and they seem to really enjoy it. It's not something that is approached as, oh, I got to go out there and fight through three miles just so I can you know, maintain a certain fitness level. This is just something they do. It's what everybody does. It's just a way of life. Uh, the kids, the games that kids play all involve an extreme amount of running, not just like hide-and-seek. The games are built around running long distances. So it's incredibly interesting. And they all run like in sandals. Uh, I don't know if anybody runs barefoot. I think it's like the terrain is a little dangerous to run barefoot. But a lot of them run in these sandals. They don't provide a lot of a cushion that we've become accustomed to. A lot of this book is also based around the idea that uh, barefoot running or running with those little like toe shoes things is the most natural and healthy way to run and I'm not going to dive into that debate. There's plenty of stuff out there. The stuff they say in the book makes sense, but one thing I've learned pretty quickly is just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's right. There's a lot of different reasons and um, the things that could like make something seem logical, but it may not actually be uh, the true uh, cause of something. And uh, yeah, I'll just let you guys research that for yourself. I don't know what the right answer is, um, but whatever. Uh, they also discuss uh, the Leadville 100, which is, I don't know if this is the main way that uh, the the people in the U.S. became familiar with this tribe, but the Leadville 100 is a one of the most well-known 100-mile races in Colorado, in Leadville, Colorado. It's very high altitude, and it's a very difficult one, and... In early 90s, I believe, this one guy found, this one American found this tribe in Mexico and brought some of these guys back to the Leadville 100 to see how well they would do. And I don't know, the first year, I don't think it went super well or it, it didn't quite, it didn't quite meet expectations. But then for a, at least a couple years after that, they just dominated the Leadville 100. And it was, uh, and there's one anecdote they had about at mile 70 the Leadville 100. And at this point, basically everybody is dying. They're just struggling to push through the last 30 miles. And they come into this uh, refueling, this rest station at mile 70. And most, yeah, like I said, most people are dying at this point. And these two guys who are first and second in this race currently, or second and third, and they are in the, they're two members of this tribe. And they come in, and they're just smiling and laughing at mile 70. And the people who were running the station remember just like being absolutely shocked. And the other racers, it was very demoralizing for them, naturally. 
uh, just to see these two guys enjoying themselves at mile 70 of it, one was difficult 100-mile races. And eventually, at least one of them went on to win the race. But uh, uh, that, so anyway, the tribe, uh, soon there was some relationship that broke up with the guy who had found these people from the Terra, Terra Humara tribe and brought them to Leadville. And then eventually, this one guy um, who paced, he was a, a white guy just from America, who paced one of these guys from this tribe in Leadville. He was so infatuated by these guys that he went down to Copper Canyons and um, eventually organized, along with the author of this book and a few other people, organized a 50-miler in the Copper Canyons just to kind of allow all the as many people who wanted to from this tribe to compete so that instead of trying to bring them to American races, just to celebrate the running culture of this tribe. Set up this 50-miler, very difficult one down there. Uh, a few other ultra marathoners from America came down there, including Scott Jurek, who is a legend in the ultra running community. He is, uh, I believe, I think almost everybody considers him the greatest ultra marathoner of all time. He uh, won Western States 100, which is, the, I believe, the first 100 mile race from 1999 to 05. He won that six years in a row. He won Badwater in 05 and 06, one of the years that Goggins ran in it. Uh, just a, he's a very accomplished. He's run a, won a lot of other ultra marathons, and uh, so that that's how the book the book culminated with that 50 mile race, and it was uh, really cool to see that all come to fruition because it was a very difficult process in getting that actually set up. So it's a really interesting book. It also, like I said, pretty well known. I think it came out in like '09, a pretty popular. Um, so you may have heard of it, but. I would recommend checking that one out for sure. That's Born to Run by Christopher McDougall. Okay, on to number four. Too Big to Fail by Andrew Ross Sorkin. This book is about the aftermath of the financial crisis in 07 and 08 and mostly focuses around the year of 2008 when most of the bailouts happened of different investment banks and a number of different players around the financial uh, crisis. And this was a great book. Uh, also a fairly well-known one as far as Wall Street is concerned. It's one of the uh, most popular books about Wall Street. And the author is also a co-creator of the TV show Billions, which is has a lot of finance in there as well. And so I'd like to go through some of the really interesting parts of this book. Um, so whether you want to read the book or not, this at least covers a number of different things that you might find interesting and you may not even feel like you need to read the book at all. But uh, starting with, in 2007, uh, so at the peak of the economic bubble, uh, the financial services industry accounted for 40% of total corporate profits in the U.S. And to also to give some uh, context, this is a statistic from the book The Four by Scott Galloway, which is a book about Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple. And I read that. It was in my, I believe, Best Books of May podcast. The number one book is a super interesting book about business. But he talks about the five largest companies in 2006 compared to the five largest companies in 2017. So in 2006, uh, two of those by, by market cap, 
Uh, ExxonMobil and GE were number one and number two, Microsoft number three, and then four and five were two investment banks, Citigroup and Bank of America. And uh, then by 2017, they're all tech companies. So it was the big four, which I mentioned earlier, Apple, Alphabet, so Google, Amazon, Facebook, and then the only person, the only player still in the top five from 06 to 2017 was Microsoft, uh, number third in third place both those times. Uh, so that also tells you with the five largest companies, 2006, uh, banks were much bigger players than they are today. So some of the main characters in this book, the main actors, uh, Henry Paulson, who is the Treasury Secretary under Bush and instigated a lot of the bailouts for uh, helping J.P. Morgan acquire Bear Stearns, allowing Lehman Brothers to fail in September of 08, and then helping uh, bail out AIG, and then providing a lot of funds to uh, different, a bunch of different banks. Uh, Timothy Geithner, who was at the time the president of the New York Federal Reserve Bank, which is the most important Federal Reserve Bank, he was in that position from 03 to 09, and then he was the Treasury Secretary under Obama from 09 to 13, so he took over after Paulson, after Bush left, left office. Both these guys were very active, especially Geithner, uh, in getting uh, banks to uh, work together and to do everything they could to make sure to limit the damage of the financial crisis. And uh, it's really just, it's really interesting to see how active uh, these guys were in their work and how it seemed like they really they really cared uh, about um, th- like th- these guys are they're in government positions and they're not necessarily they're not operating these gigantic investment banks and so it was really just really cool to see uh, the work they were doing. Um, so describing a little bit about uh, the causes of the financial crisis. So prior to the crash, um, investment banks spread risk among investors. Uh, and for better or for worse, all the various actors in the financial cri- in the financial markets were very well connected. So where we look at, so one of the main reasons people talk about there being less conflict in the world between countries is because we're economically intertwined. So we're much less likely to start a war with some other country if we are doing business with them than if we weren't doing business with them. That is pretty reasonable. But the problem with that is something like this, where the example he gives in the book, a municipal pension fund in Norway might have some subprime mortgages from California in its portfolio and not even realize it. So obviously uh, that could be an issue when you get to the point where you're just not aware of what's happening uh, because everything is so connected. And so, and then there's some, everything affects everything else. So a big aspect of the financial crisis, and this is highlighted in the big short, both the book and the movie, uh, is the credit default swaps, which is basically a way to ensure the subprime mortgages and the CDOs, so collateralized, collateralized debt obligations, which are made up of subprime mortgages, and the credit default swaps are just insurance in case these uh, mortgages default. And because there was so much confidence in the, in the housing market, 
nobody ever thought that these things would default. And so they could just sell these credit default swaps, these this insurance, and collect the premiums on it. And it just seemed like free money because there was no risk of them ever having to pay off these credit default swaps. Eventually, everything crashed and they did have to pay these off. And that's where you get people benefiting in the big short, the main characters who were benefiting off of this crash, obviously, who had, who had purchased these credit default swaps. They made bank, but then everything else just demolished. And that is one of the, the, the movie really doesn't highlight it too much, but in the book, the big short talks about how at the end, there's these guys who did the smart thing and took advantage of the stupidity of the people who were uh, too confident in the housing markets, but they were basically profiting off of everybody else going into recession. And that was a little bit bittersweet for them. So anyway, the, the firms were overconfident in the housing market. That goes without saying. And selling these credit default swaps. And eventually this came back to bite them. Um, a big part of the book... So Bear Stearns, the acquisition of Bear Stearns happens pretty early. J.P. Morgan acquires Bear Stearns with the help of the government. And then most of the book is about the process of trying to find a buyer for Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers. And uh, Barclays was an option. Bank of America was an option. Uh, eventually, Bank of America decided not to. And they eventually acquired Merrill Lynch, who was probably was on the, the next one out after Lehman Brothers. And uh, Barclays was another option. Uh, eventually, they were not able to. They only purchased a part of Lehman Brothers. Uh, the government uh, helped out uh, American International Group, an insurance uh, company, and with a credit line of $85 billion, um, and the government took a 80% ownership stake. Uh, in 2008, uh, the last two uh, investment banks, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, became bank holding companies. So bank holding companies just have more limit on debt, and so it's difficult to uh, be as over leveraged as these investment banks were and it's just uh, safer for the markets so he finishes off this book with a number of different not so much recommend there are some recommendations in here uh, but uh, one interesting quote he gave about uh, was Bar a barney frank quote and he was talking about uh, paulson's performance as treasury secretary for bush and he said the problem in politics is this you don't get any credit for disaster averted. Going to the voters and saying, boy, things really suck, but you know what? If it wasn't for me, they would suck worse. And obviously that's not a very inspiring message, and that's essentially what uh, Paulson was having to do. And there was, naturally there was criticism of these bailouts on both sides. So the right didn't like it because they weren't letting the free market do their thing. The government was bailing out these companies and all that stuff. The, what even the, what a Paulson, a Republican, and many other Republicans who a lot of people run investment banks are very capitalist, financially minded guys who are Republicans, and even and they consider these super free market ideologues to be absolutely off out of their mind. That they're over overly simplifying these topics they really don't know what they're talking about they're just sticking to something that sounds pretty good and pretty natural but they don't really know what's going on um, and 
that's a constant theme. So, well, I mean, honestly, what you know is that Paulson was acting in a uh, in an impartial and bipartisan way because he was getting criticized from both sides. Um, like I said, the right didn't want uh, the free markets to be messed with in this way, and the left didn't want all these big Wall Street fat cats to be bailed out when they considered them to be, at, at the very least, negligent, at the very worst, uh, criminal. So uh, one of his recommendations is that there could be three aspects of regulation that could be enacted. Uh, stricter limits on leverage, so not allowing uh, banks to go to, uh, to have more funds backed up instead of uh, being over-leveraged. Another option to curb payments, curb on pay structures that encourage irresponsible risk, and a crackdown on rumor mongers and manipulation of stock and derivative markets. He doesn't really go into a lot of detail on how these things would be accomplished, uh, but these, but uh, I suppose that's for someone else to figure out. And another interesting fact: uh, the banks had paid out more than a hundred billion in settlements to the U.S. government related to a malfeasance that led to the crisis. Uh, that's quite a bit. Uh, one theory is that uh, over the years, the DOJ, the Department of Justice, became so used to settling cases that they no longer had the firepower to uh, beat the legal defenses of banks, which naturally would be some of the best lawyers available. Uh, as far as the how criminal these uh, people on Wall Street actually were, uh, the, in the Lehman autopsy that they uh, did right after Lehman, uh, failed was uh, a court-appointed examiner. He did 2,000 turn pages of, of he produced a report of that length, and the investigation cost 36 million dollars. And his final conclusion was that Lehman should have exercised greater caution, but did not cross into gross negligence. And essentially, whereas we, we always hear this an- anecdote about only one person going to jail in the aftermath of a financial crisis and people complaining about that and saying it's not right. And, I mean, maybe not, but also there has to be laws in the first place to actually break to send someone to jail. And there just was not enough regulation uh, to even have people to break those laws. And that would be the main thing that Sorkin uh, would recommend for the future. And he did... He did say at the end that he just felt like the CEOs uh, did not understand the risk that investment banks had placed themselves in in the entire economy. Uh, his his alternate title was a Failure of Imagination for the book. That was what he thought uh, a good title for it would be. It doesn't quite get the heart of it, so it wouldn't maybe sell as many copies, but it is uh, pretty descriptive as far as uh, his opinion on how this was handled. And another thing, so this is one thing Lehman did, and this is a legal accounting trick. I don't know if it is anymore, but it was at the time. So what a company would do, and Lehman was doing this, was they would sell their securities to a counterparty in exchange for cash, which they would then use that money to pay down debt. And they would do this right before the quarter ended, right before their financial statements were due. Then a few days after the quarter ended, they would turn around and then take these securities back and go back into debt. And these were uh, not repurchase agreements. They were just uh, sales that would they were agreed upon to make the firm seem less leveraged 
right around the time that they had to report uh, on their financial statements. And so stuff like this, I don't know if that's an, still an option, that specific one, that, a specific accounting trick, but things like that obviously are an issue and uh, would be what SOAR can recommend taking care of. Okay, so that's about enough for book number four. That was Too Big to Fail by Andrew Ross Sorkin. Okay, on to number five. And I'll probably fly through these last two. Don't or The last three, don't have a whole, whole lot to say about them. This book is Endure by Alex Hutchinson. And he is a pretty accomplished runner. He's a two-hour and 15-minute marathoner. He's written for a lot of publications, including Runner's World. And this book is primarily how athletes can expand what they thought was possible in their minds. He has a lot of examples of explorers, of cyclists, and include, and then obviously marathoners. He talks a lot about the Breaking 2 project that Nike did a couple years ago, which is also a good, there's an hour documentary on YouTube about Breaking 2 that's really good. I would recommend checking that out if you're interested in this topic. And... I really like how he approached this. He's skeptical of these new ideas of how to improve performance, particularly mentally. He doesn't, one thing I've noticed a lot of people who write, who are athletes, who write about the new science in sports are very, they're very simplistic in their thinking and they will take basically any evidence, no matter how sketchy, as sufficient. And They'll just buy into all these new different fads of nutrition and fitness and everything. And then they're also always changing how their approach is. And I've noticed that on a lot of people. They, um, I, I don't know if it's a way to just not to avoid like putting in the work. If it's just like, I'm just going to rely on these new little shortcuts, these new research and new ideas, these new training hacks. But uh, he, so he's very skeptical about it. And all these things he says, you know, he always provides a caveat, you know, this has not been proved on certain people. This has not been proved to the extent that it probably should be. Just different things like that to basically say, okay, this is an interesting idea to explore, but let's just not take it and run with it, no pun intended, to uh, an irresponsible extent. Honestly, I don't have a whole lot to say about this book. It's just a really good one. It's just a lot of examples of endurance and fitness and how to get better at it. Uh, He talks a lot about ultra marathoners, about regular marathoners, and as I mentioned, different events, uh, different other different um, endurance activities like um, explorers to the South Pole, uh, cyclists, all that stuff. Okay, let's move on to number six, The Prince by Niccolo Machiavelli. Like I said, it came out in 1513. Uh, Machiavelli lived from 1469 to 1527. He was a secretary to the Second Chancery of the Republic of Florence, which means absolutely nothing to me, uh, from 1498 to 1512. And uh, yeah, anyway, he is considered the father of uh, modern political philosophy, political science. And uh, he has a lot of uh, interesting quotes in this book. It's not a super long book. And I'm definitely not going to read through a bunch of them, but I think some of them are really uh, interesting. So he has... And, and one thing to mention about Machiavellianism is that it's it's ruthless, it's manipulative. A lot of people consider it to be 
unethical, but it does seem to be pretty effective. And a lot of these things, I was like, oh, okay, yeah, I could see that. I can see that happening in the world to a certain extent. Maybe not so much as viscerally as he describes in his book. And clearly, there are some things that are from a past day that really doesn't happen, at least in the U.S. I'm sure it happens at other places uh, around the world, uh, and maybe and uh, not so much in U.S. politics. I mean, I'm sure it happens still in the U.S. as far as uh, leaders being. Uh, you know, dangerous and manipulative and all that stuff. So here's some of his quotes. Uh, if an injury has to be done to a man, it should be so severe that severe that his vengeance need not be feared. Seems pretty solid. Uh, there is no other way to guard yourself against flattery than by making men understand that telling you the truth will not offend you. So he has a whole section about the problem with leaders sometimes is that nobody will tell them the truth. Everybody is pandering to them. We see that quite a bit. And he recommends having a group of people around you who are, who will be honest with you and that you can listen to them, but then not listen to anybody else. So pick your people and then ignore the pains of everybody else. Uh, the first method for estimating the intelligence of a ruler is to look at the men he has around him. That seems pretty relevant right now in America. He talks about the question of better, would you rather be feared or loved? It is much safer to be feared than loved because love is preserved by the link of obligation which, owing to the baseness of men, is broken at every opportunity for their advantage. But fear preserves you by dread of punishment which never fails. So basically, if you want to be loved, cool. But people will love you or not love you depending on how they're feeling on a particular day. But they will always be scared of you no matter how they're feeling if that is something you have decided to uh, set a precedent of. Where willingness is great, the difficulties cannot be great. A prudent man should always follow in the path trodden by great men and imitate those who are most excellent so that if he does not attain to their greatness... At any rate, he will get some tinge of it. I like that. Men ought either to be well-treated or crushed because they can avenge themselves of lighter injuries, of more serious ones they cannot. Therefore, the injury that is to be done to a man ought to be of such a kind that one does not stand in fear of revenge. He who builds on the people builds on the mud. I like that one a lot. Uh, I really... One like fundamental principle that I live my life by is that if you just do things that everybody wants you to do, then you are pretty much screwed. Because first of all, you might realize you don't like that thing, but also you might realize that that was just what they wanted you to do in the moment. And they might want you to do something else. Uh, so I do not, along with this podcast, like this inherently, this what I'm doing right now is not that interesting, I don't think. I'm just sitting here by myself talking about books. But that's just what I want to do. And I'm not going to not do it just because it's not going to be mass appealing. And same with everything else we do on the podcast. If we do what we want, and if it happens to be something people like, that's awesome. But we're not going to beat ourselves up, and we really don't care if it's not. He who builds on the people builds on the mud. Okay. I think that's basically all I have for this one. Uh, it's a good book. It wasn't like, honestly, 
you'd probably get the exact same benefit out of this book if you just Googled the Prince quotes by Machiavelli than if you just read the whole thing. But if you look at the quotes from this book and think it's really interesting, then definitely check it out. And last but not least, number seven, my favorite author, Michael Lewis, his first book, Liar's Poker. Uh, Michael Lewis, my favorite nonfiction author. Uh, he passed Malcolm Gladwell recently. I like Malcolm Gladwell a lot, and Malcolm Gladwell likes Michael Lewis a lot. Uh, but I like how specific Michael Lewis's topics are. He really dives into something, a whole story. Whereas Gladwell's, while they're super interesting, they just sort of jump around from a bunch of different things in the same book. And it definitely has a theme, no doubt. Like Outliers, Outliers is one of my favorite books. Like I might like Outliers more than I like any Malcolm or Michael Lewis book, but I like Michael Lewis as a whole more than Gladwell. I just really like how he approaches it, but Gladwell's still a close second. This was uh, Michael Lewis's first book. I think I mentioned that. Uh, it's about the years he spent on Wall Street. It's very funny and entertaining. Uh, it's one of the few books, if not the only book he has, that is uh, somewhat autobiographical. It's about his story, about his time on Wall Street, and it is very interesting. He talks about the atmosphere and the characters on the trading floor, and uh, it's just a really fun book to read, especially if you are interested in finance or any of those topics. I would definitely recommend checking that out. Okay, well, I do not have anything else to say. That was a tight, tight 45 if you uh, enjoy this podcast, uh, check out the other top books podcasts. Uh, you can also uh, recommend this to your friends um, and definitely uh, read some of these books. I think they're good ones. Uh, so I will see you guys in the next one. <laughs>